Welcome to Movement Memos, a Truth Out podcast about organizing, solidarity, and the work of making change. I'm your host, writer and organizer, Kelly Hayes. Today, we are talking about the struggle to stop Cop City in Atlanta and DeKalb County, Georgia, and the death of forest defender Manuel Esteban Paez Tehran, who was gunned down by police on the morning of January 18th. The Guardian has called the deadly shooting unprecedented in the history of U.S. environmental protest. While the killing of protesters, including environmentalists, is not unprecedented by any means in this country, law enforcement entering a forced occupation and killing a protester does mark an escalation of state violence for this era. Co-strugglers have described Tehran as a trained medic, a loving partner, a dear friend, a brave soul, and so much more. At the Stop Cop City protest site, a tree sit and encampment in the South River Forest, which activists call Wolani Forest, Tehran went by the name Tortuguita, which is how we will be referring to them in this episode. Tortuguita was part of a forest defense effort to stave off the creation of a sprawling $90 million training complex for police that opponents have dubbed Cop City. After a dynamic grassroots organizing campaign and public opposition failed to prevent officials from leasing the land for the project, the forest defense stage of the struggle kicked into high gear. As activists built community and held their ground, staging educational and cultural events, distributing free groceries and practicing other forms of mutual aid, police harassment and attacks on the movement intensified. Cops flattened community gardens and art installations and attacked protesters with tear gas and rubber bullets while threatening lethal force. Opponents of Cop City also carried out autonomous direct actions aimed at halting construction, including some acts of property destruction. The struggle's decentralized nature makes it unclear who is responsible for particular actions, but the police and police-friendly media have zeroed in on tree sitters as a target to vilify, depict as violent, and attack. On December 13, 2022, the Atlanta Police Department, DeKalb County Police, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, and the Department of Homeland Security descended on the forest defenders. A statement from the group Defend the Forest stated that tree sitters were shot with pepper balls and tear gas for up to five hours by police from the forest floor. During the December 13th raid, police claimed that rocks, bottles, and some incendiary weapons were thrown at them. Ultimately, six protesters were slapped with domestic terrorism charges that activists maintain are erroneous. Four days later, 175 people gathered in a park to voice their solidarity with the arrestees with one attendee declaring, They are trying to separate the tree-sitters from all of us. They represent the movement to them, so they are charging them with terrorism. But we are all forest defenders. We are all in the movement. And we won't be scared away from this. We won't stop until the APF stops Cop City. By the new year, repeated police attacks had taken a heavy toll on the encampment and had driven many protesters away but some forest defenders were still hanging on. Tortuguita was one of them. On January 18th, according to the Atlanta Community Press Collective, dozens of heavily armed DeKalb police, Atlanta police, and Georgia State police shut down Walani People's Park and nearby streets before entering the tree line with guns drawn and heavy machinery poised to continue forest destruction forest defenders reported hearing a rapid succession of gunshots around 9 a.m. Tree-sitters were targeted with pepper balls, and activists on the ground were chased by police dogs. A forest defender who remained anonymous for safety reasons told Democracy Now! These defenders had to hide and flee for their lives, all the while with the nauseating knowing that their dear comrade had been murdered in the sacred land that we call home. Protesters say that since June 6, 2022, activists and community members involved with the struggle have been demanding that officers stop bringing weapons into the forest after APD pointed their weapons at peaceful protesters. 
A lot of people may shy away from solidarity with the forest defenders because the police are claiming the Tortuguita fired first. But we have plenty of reasons to be skeptical of the police narrative, and we cannot abandon this struggle, as the violent and legal repression of protesters has implications for all of our fights against state violence and environmental destruction. My heart is hurting over the death of Tortuguita, a forest defender I never met, for so many reasons. One is the loss of this young person under any circumstance. Theirs was a life cut far too short. I also feel a sense of kinship and loss. I know many other activists who have worked in campments and tree sits are also feeling this way. Because there's something special about that kind of struggle. There's something in the prefigurative work and the effort to rehearse the world we want to care for each other, in the face of the elements, in the face of police, even when you're under siege. It's beautiful, messy work, and whether our battles are won or lost, we carry it with us, always. Ruth Wilson Gilmore tells us that where life is precious, life is precious. In every encampment and forest defense scenario I've been a part of, People were trying to cultivate a place where life was precious, and where people were precious to one another. In those spaces, I have seen things that made me believe we could remake the world. When I think about all of that power and potential, the thought of a young person who was out there for the love of the trees being struck down, it just rips right through me. I am also saddened once again, by how easy it is for the police to cast a self-serving narrative over any killing they commit. We have seen this countless times, and seen them proven liars just as many times. In case after case, we have seen the police change their stories as videos, witnesses, or forensics disrupted their lies. This has happened in the killings of Walter Scott, Alex Nieto, Amilcar Perez-Lopez, Timothy Mitchell Jr., Ayanna Jones, Dennis Tuttle, Regina Nicholas, Laquan McDonald, George Floyd, and so many others. Lying after killing is a standard police practice. On January 9th, police in Oklahoma shot and killed Chaiwalfelt Mariar, a 26-year-old refugee from Sudan, at the meatpacking plant where Mariar had just been fired but ordered to complete his shift. Another worker was fired for sharing a video that workers say contradicts police claims that Mary R. posed a threat. The Memphis Police Department recently terminated five police officers in connection with the death of Tyree Nichols, who was brutalized by police after a traffic stop. Police originally claimed that Nichols had complained of shortness of breath following a confrontation before ultimately firing the officers and acknowledging the egregious nature of the incident. In 2022, U.S. police killed more people than in any year since experts began keeping records. So it's important to remember who we are dealing with on both sides of this story. I attended a vigil for Tortuguita in Chicago the day after they were killed by police. One of the signs posted beside candles and other tributes included words taken from an interview Tortuguita gave to writer David Peisner. This is what they said of the movement to stop Cop City. If enough people decide to do this with nonviolent action, you can overwhelm the infrastructure of the state. That's something they fear more than violence in the streets, because violence in the streets, they'll win. They have the guns for it. We don't. Sometimes. When police kill, a camera tells the story. But often, when the police take a life, we lack the information we need to fully reconstruct what happened. We have the word of police, who make a systemic practice of lying, and the absence of whatever story the dead might have told. Even video footage, which police often seem to utilize, turn off, or disappear at will, is treated as open to interpretation 
as we saw with the case of Adam Toledo, whose death resulted in no charges or disciplinary action for the officer who shot him, despite camera footage that indicated Adam had put up his hands, as directed, before being shot. I cannot eliminate the uncertainty of what happened before police killed Tortuguita. I only know what that uncertainty means to me. That a wound has been inflicted on our communities and on the earth itself, and that a hole now exists in the fabric of what should be. A hole that would not be there if not for the violence of police. Whether you are still contemplating what that uncertainty means to you or not, I urge you to listen to what my friend, Atlanta-based organizer Micah Herskind, has to say about the struggle that Tortuguita died waging. I want us to think about that movement and about that loss and what we recognize in it, in this moment and in ourselves, because it calls on us, as many future moments will, to decide what side we are on and what we are willing to defend and fight for. Well, thanks so much for having me. My name is Micah Herskind. My pronouns are he, him. I am an organizer here in Atlanta, and I've been um, supporting the Stop Cop City movement, um, done some more sort of journalistic documentation of some of the forces behind pushing the Cop City project, and then, you know, have just been trying to support folks as they resist the, the creation of, you know, the proposed creation of Cop City. So in terms of how people are doing and, you know, what people are feeling, I think there's so many different emotions, um, grief and anguish, outrage, disgust, sadness, I think also determination to, to see this movement through in terms of sort of, you know, what's happened in, in, in the last couple of days. A lot of details are not clear about exactly how things have gone down, but what we do know is essentially on the morning of January 18th, a joint police task force um, led what they called a clearing operation in the Wilani Forest, um, which is the proposed site for um, basically destruction of that forest land and the creation of a massive police training facility um, in southeast Atlanta. And during this raid, we know that police, Georgia State Troopers, shot and killed a forest defender. And at the same time, a cop was also shot non-fatally um, and taken to the hospital where they were treated and, you know, they're, they're stable. Um, that raid, that police raid continued throughout the day and police arrested, I believe, around eight more forest defenders, many of whom were charged with domestic terrorism charges, which mirrors a raid that happened back in December where six forest defenders were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. And so, so that's sort of the basic story of what happened. There are very few details that have been released officially. Of course, you know, the cop narrative is that they were shot at and they, you know, returned fire in self-defense. But that, that narrative has actually changed uh, multiple times already. So first they said, um, you know, that they were ambushed out of nowhere with gunfire and, you know, an officer was non-fatally shot. And then shortly after, they said they were actually in conversation with the forest offender and, you know, gave the forest offender verbal commands, and then they were fired at and returned fire. Throughout all of this, now the Georgia Bureau of, of, of Investigation has said that there's no body camera footage available, that GSP troopers don't wear body camera footage, and they've also refused to release the names of any of the officers involved. And so that's sort of, you know, the official narrative that's already changed a couple times. Whereas on the other hand, reports from sort of on the ground that have been already covered by media um, have suggested the possibility of accidental friendly fire. So, you know, cops accidentally shooting each other. Um, and, you know, that would not be the first time that that happened in Atlanta. So a lot of the details are unclear. What is clear is that Georgia police shot and killed someone who was trying to stop the construction of, of Cop City in Atlanta. While police continue to push their narrative, some journalists have raised questions. In The Guardian, journalist Timothy Pratt pointed out that police have provided no evidence to back their claims that Tortuguita shot at a state trooper or fired on police at all. In a piece called Little Turtles War, 
David Peisner offers a portrait of Tortuguita based on extensive interviews that conveys a foundational commitment to nonviolence. Tortuguita told Peisner that they were not moved by what some people think of as the exciting stuff in forced defense work, such as acts of sabotage or property destruction. They told Peisner, I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I don't crave conflict. I'm out here because I love the forest. I love living in the woods. Being a forced hobo is pretty chill. Some folks probably have flashpoint moments like, oh yes, the truck is being lit on fire, but not me. I love it when everything is calm. There have already been so many stories pouring in. You can see them all over social media of people who knew them and, you know, remember them as a loving friend, a dedicated comrade. Um, in fact, you know, someone who was vocal about their commitment to nonviolent resistance. And, you know, there have already been vigils that have been hosted in their honor and in their memory, you know, with more vigils and more protests planned. And so there's already been such, you know, an outpouring of love and support and remembrances of this person and, you know, just how how loved and incredible they were. And I believe the Atlanta Community Press Collective has been documenting a lot of those stories. One co-struggler who paid tribute to Tortuguita stated, they loved all life and people, especially their cutie BIPOC community, deeply. I think it's important to remember that while we do not know exactly what happened to Tortuguita on January 18th and the moments before they were killed, we do know that virtually everything we know about Tortuguita runs counter to what the police are saying. And everything we know about the police suggests that they would lie in the wake of a deadly shooting. I think when when people are, you know, hearing and taking in these police narratives, it's really important to understand that cops' stories change all the time. And, you know, there's really established precedent that, that police lie, particularly in the wake of police violence. There are, you know, too many examples to go through all of them. But, you know, we, we of course, saw that, you know, with, with the police murder of George Floyd here in Atlanta in, in the 2000s, police sort of went through with a mistaken drug raid and they they went to the wrong place and shot and killed a 92-year-old black grandmother Catherine Johnston and after after they did that and, and and actually they they hit each other with friendly fire in the midst of that raid and to sort of cover that up they planted drugs in the house and you know they claimed that they were you know that they were injured by by Miss Johnston and so you know there there's a long history of cops committing violence and then lying to cover it up. And then, you know, the truth maybe comes out because there's citizen footage or, you know, some sort of footage that comes forward. But I think people should know to be deeply, deeply skeptical of cop narratives, particularly, you know, when when police have, have killed. I'll also just add that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is um, helping lead this joint police task force that is basically trying to take on the forest offenders and, and take them down. Um, and they're also the ones who are tasked with investigating the shooting. And so, you know, I think people need to be very clear that there needs to be an independent investigation, that all of the footage needs to be released, whether that's dash cam footage, you know, footage from other police forces who were in the forest, even if they weren't with the troopers, you know, when the shooting happened. And so, you know, I, folks are calling for an independent investigation, which is really important. But one other thing I want to say in general about the narrative um, and, you know, sort of how to how to think about the cop narrative is that, you know, cops lie, cops lie all the time. We should be prepared for, you know, any anything that they say in the wake of this shooting to be a lie. But also we should recognize that even if it even if it turns out that you know, what the cops are saying happened is, you know, true in part or in whole or whatever, that doesn't change the fact that the responsibility and the culpability for 
this shooting and this death ultimately lies with the police, with the Atlanta City Council, with the Atlanta mayor, with the entire sort of network of forces who have pushed this facility despite all of this public backlash that, you know, no one would have ever been in a situation to be shot and killed if the Atlanta City Council and the Atlanta mayor and, you know, Atlanta leadership broadly had not decided to move forward with this. So I think we do also, you know, we need the details and we need the investigation. And also, regardless of the details that come out, we need to recognize that no matter what, the responsibility here lies with the people who are trying to destroy a forest and create a massive police militarization facility. Responsibility is really important to emphasize here. We need to look at who is mass-producing harm while also claiming the authority to legitimize or delegitimize violence. We live in a world where corporations, governments, and militaries that drive climate disruption are not held responsible for the deaths or displacement of millions of people. We are faced with the possibility of extinction, and the people who would ultimately be responsible for that annihilation are not on trial. Millions of people are experiencing torturous conditions in the U.S. prison system daily. There are no raids happening to stop the people responsible for that violence. As Miriam Kaba and I discuss in our upcoming book, Let This Radicalize You, protesters on the left are expected to passively absorb any and all violence visited upon them while upholding respectability at all times. Even people who acknowledge the heinous extremity of state violence often become critical of protesters who are not solemn in their absorption of that violence, or those who destroy property. Even as the world burns, our enemies have many of us putting our own people on trial in our minds, weighing their innocence or guilt by laws that allow the powerful to annihilate humanity with impunity. Personally, that's not how I plan to tabulate blame as the world falls down. From my perspective, the violence of the state is fundamentally illegitimate. That's my jumping off point. I will say more about Tortuguita, their death, and how we should remember them. But first, we are going to get a bit more of the backstory of the struggle they were waging when the police took their life. So, in, in the summer of 2021, essentially, was the first time that this proposal to destroy close to 400 acres of forest land in the southeast Atlanta and to replace that, to build, you know, in that forest land's place, a massive police training facility that, that protesters are calling Cop City. That, that first came forward in, in summer 2021. There had actually been plans for it that were first sort of laid out going back to 2017. The Atlanta Police Foundation is this private nonprofit that, you know, a lot of cities have police foundations and APF is a really significant one, has a ton of money, a ton of corporate backers. And so they had sort of been devising this plan for several years, but it it seems like it was pretty dormant until the uprisings hit. And it was, you know, this summer across the country, across the world of so much revolutionary energy, um, you know, abolitionist thought and praxis, I think, really went sort of mainstream for the first time. People in Atlanta, people everywhere were calling, you know, for the defunding and the abolition of the police. Of course, there was massive police repression of those uprisings, massive police violence in response. And what followed, you know, that police violence was sort of policy violence. So Georgia passed essentially a Blue Lives Matter bill. Atlanta quickly gave um, raises to cops and, you know, gave one-time bonuses that were funded by the Atlanta Police Foundation to cops. There were all these announcements of these new anti-crime strategies. They opened a new police precinct in Buckhead, which is this sort of white, wealthy area of Atlanta. All of these stories started to run in the media in Atlanta's corporate-owned media about, you know, the crime wave, crime is out of control, it's because of the defund movement, it's because of the abolition movement. You know, in, in terms of policy, again, the Atlanta City Council rolled back its 2018 bail reform law, 
So there was, you know, they, there was all of this, there was a sort of flurry of both policy responses and police violence in response to the uprisings. That's sort of, you know, one thing happening. Another thing happening is that, you know, Atlanta is looking to host several events in the upcoming years. So they're hosting part of the 2026 World Cup. Um, they're pushing to host the Democratic National Convention in the coming years. And so, you know, w- with those events happening, in a lot of ways, I think it's mirroring what happened with the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, where they built a brand new city jail to hold people, you know, to clear Black and homeless people off the streets in preparation for these major events. And I'll say at the same time that all this Cop City stuff is happening, the city also reversed its 2019 promise to shut down that city jail that was created for the Olympics. And instead, they're keeping it open and they're filling it with a bunch of people from the county jail. A sort of a third <laughs> a third factor in this mix um, is that sort of during 2020-2021, this rich white area of Atlanta called Buckhead was sort of pushing this secession movement where they wanted to secede from the city um, and take, you know, all of their tax dollars with them. It was very much sort of a modern day white flight, um, white secession movement, white supremacist movement. And city leaders were really afraid of that. And then the last thing I'll say before trying to pull it all together is that Atlanta right now is also sort of the epicenter of huge development projects, enormous gentrification. People are being pushed out. Um, you know, new, wealthier, and white people are are being sort of pulled into the city through all of these different tech jobs. And of course, you know, policing and police expansion and surveillance is central to, you know, gentrification, to the displacement of people. And so I think with all of these factors wanting to, you know, respond to the uprisings, um, sort of cement this, you know, police grip of Atlanta prepare for all of, you know, the nasty things that cities do when they're bringing big events, um, prevent this threatened secession by Buckhead. I think all of that combined to this sort of combination of state and corporate support for the creation of this police training center. And, you know, I think it's really a way to buy loyalty and, you know, buy some sense of happiness and contentment for cops. It's a way to assure all, all of these corporations that are really powerful in Atlanta, that, you know, Atlanta is going to crack down on the uprisings. Atlanta is going to, you know, make sure that basically all of their capital investments are safe against, you know, people who would ostensibly threaten it. And so, you know, I think all of that combines for, you know, why the city is pushing so hard for this project, despite the public being, you know, so firmly against it. I am just going to briefly interrupt us with your weekly reminder that Truthout is a nonprofit news organization that only exists because of listeners and readers like you. If you keep track of the independent news landscape, you know that we have lost some great publications in recent months and years. Journalists are facing layoffs across the industry. Here at Truthout, we are still hanging on, but I am not going to lie to you all. It is a struggle. The media landscape has been engineered to wipe out anything that isn't owned by the very people who are screwing us all over. Corporate algorithms are hurting us, but we are still here providing award-winning news and analysis that I believe helps to fuel and uplift our movements. Truthout has not laid anyone off during the pandemic. We are a union shop and we have the best family and sick leave policies in the industry. So if you think all of that is worth fighting for, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today. Or maybe even become a sustainer, because truth be told, those people are the reason we are still here. Thanks so much, and back to the show. Cop City is no ordinary training facility. The $90 million complex would include military-grade training facilities, a mock cityscape to practice urban warfare, dozens of shooting ranges, and a Black Hawk helicopter landing pad. As Kamau Franklin wrote in Truthout earlier this month, this police training facility for Atlanta police is a prototype of militarized police centers in the country. If built, Cop City will be the largest police training facility of its kind, 
in a city that is ranked in the bottom 20 of largest police departments in the country. So in terms of what sort of this police complex would include, it's ostensibly a training area for both Atlanta police and Atlanta firefighters. One of sort of the most controversial parts of it is that, and, and the reason that it was dubbed Cop City by organizers, um, was that it it's literally slated to include this mock city area. So this sort of mock village that would have you know, residential areas, a school, nightlife, a bank, a gas station, all things for police literally to sort of practice modern urban, you know, police warfare tactics. Um, it'll have, you know, a helicopter landing pad, a shooting range. Police actually already use this area as a shooting range. And so, you know, already residents, you know, talk about the sound of gunfire and even the environmental pollution that happens with, you know, shell casings being left behind, things seeping into the river. But yeah, this this facility would include, you know, all basically, basically a place for police to perfect their deadly tactics of, you know, social control, violence against organizers, violence against community members. That's That's really what it is at the end of the day. And it's, you know, not just something that will impact Atlanta. It's a place that, you know, they will bring in cops from across the country, from across the world to come train, share tactics, you know, work together. And so it really is a project that also has national and and international implications. While there were some radical actions early in the struggle, including the sabotage of construction equipment. The movement to stop Cop City built much of its early momentum by organizing community members to take on the city council. A momentous grassroots mobilization formed to prevent the city from leasing the proposed site of Cop City, which officials originally dubbed the Atlanta Institute for Social Justice and Public Safety Training to the Atlanta Police Foundation. Yes, they actually tried to slap the words social justice on a military base for police. In a more apt characterization of the project, Kwame Olufemi, an organizer with Community Movement Builders, dubbed Cop City a war base where police will learn military-like maneuvers to kill Black people and control our bodies and movements. In the same statement, Olufemi noted that Cop City would include shooting ranges and plans for bomb testing and tear gas deployment. Olufemi emphasized that this was a rehearsal space for war-making against everyday people, saying, They are practicing how to make sure poor and working-class people stay in line, so when the police kill us in the streets again, like they did to Richard Brooks in 2020, they can control our protests and community response to how they continually murder our people. So I sort of think about the way that the movement has unfolded in sort of two phases. And of course, it's, it's not as distinct as that, but sort of before the legislation for the facility was approved and after. And so the final legislation was approved in September 2021, like I said before, the proposal for Cop City first really went public in the in the early summer of 2021. That was when it first really gained attention. And super quickly, this sort of coalition of organizations and individuals uh, began to speak out against it. And it was really sort of a movement with an intersectional lens. And people came to it from a lot of different places. So there were, you know, folks worried, of course, about the like sort of the environmentally catastrophic implications of this, of destroying forest land. This is land, I should say, that has been referred to as one of the four lungs of Atlanta. It's really important for our air quality, for preventing flooding. You know, of course, as climate disaster approaches and as we're already living it, this is really crucial forest land. And it's in a majority Black area of DeKalb County. Um, And so there were folks, you know, sort of working on the environmental side. There were, of course, abolitionists who are saying, you know, 
This is one year after APD murdered Rayshard Brooks and after these massive uprisings. And you're going to pour $90 million into, you know, a massive expansion of policing's footprint in Atlanta. Of course, organizations and organizers who work on gentrification were making the connections between, you know, the fact that there's so much rapid development happening in Atlanta and so many people being displaced. And the fact that, you know, police are part of that strategy. Police are part of displacement and gentrification. And then there were there were also people who, you know, maybe aren't weren't even so politicized, you know, around some of those other things, but were just, you know, furious at the fact that this this process was unfolding in such an anti-democratic way with such a lack of transparency. These plans were like created in secret. They weren't shared with, you know, the commissioners of, of DeKalb County where the site was being built because the site is being built on city-owned land, but not within city limits, it basically was able to skirt a bunch of these normal processes that, that you know, this would go through to be vetted. And so you even had neighborhood associations who are, who are closest in Atlanta to the proposed site drafting and passing resolutions saying, we, you know, we don't want this in our neighborhoods. We don't want this near us. This is, you know, dangerous and violent and please, you know, please don't do this. And so there was this really you know, massive coalition that developed. People were, you know, marching, doing banner drops. They were circulating petitions as the legislation was working its way through the city council process throughout that summer. At every city council meeting, people were, you know, at that point, everything was still virtual. People were calling in and leaving, you know, hours and hours of public comment against the facility to the point where, you know, there actually were some some, you know, wins within the, you know, the eventual loss where the the proposed acreage for the facility was brought down pretty significantly. And the the proposal was actually delayed over the course of that summer because there was so much outrage. And all of that led to sort of this final vote in September of 2021, where there were literally, it literally took them two days to get through all of the public comment that people had called and, you know, left for for them at the meeting. And so they listened to literally 17 hours of public comment, the majority of which was opposed to the project. And then, you know, of course, they went ahead and voted for it anyway. And so that was that was sort of the first phase. And I think that that maybe followed a more traditional, you know, coalition work, organizing marches, protests, you know, using a lot of sort of the official channels of engagement that people in power tell you that they that they want you to use, you know, the appropriate the appropriate channels, you know, which were then all of course ignored despite such, you know, resounding opposition. And then I would say after after that fact was when I think sort of the second phase of the movement began and that I think that's sort of where the movement is now. It is really dispersed and autonomous, you know, that is not controlled or run by any one organization. There are, you know, there are organizations who are part of the organizing, but I think it's moved into a phase where you have forest defenders who are going and living in the forest, you know, who built encampments there to protect the forest through direct action. And that's looked like a lot of different things. It's also looked like organizations putting pressure on contractors and saying, you know, just because this thing was passed at the, you know, at the city council level, that doesn't mean that the project is going to go through. Contractors can be, you know, pressured to pull out of the project. You know, there's been various efforts to slow down the permitting process and there's been, you know, a lot of skepticism on behalf of DeKalb County in in granting those permits. And so there's really I think the movement is so varied. It you know, there's some I've I heard someone refer to it as there are so many different corners of the movement and again it's really sort of broad, autonomous, decentralized and, you know, folks are working really hard to prevent the the construction of this thing. Stop Cop City organizers have frequently noted that two-thirds of Cop City's $90 million facility is being bankrolled by corporate funders and private supporters of the Atlanta Police Department, including the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's parent company, Cox Enterprises, as well as Verizon, Equifax, and Delta, among many others, while the remainder of the bill goes to taxpayers. In November of 2021, we published an episode of Movement Memos that discussed how Enbridge turned the construction of Line 3 into a piggy bank for police. 
to prevent losses on par with the $40 million that Morton County reportedly incurred for the costs of policing the Standing Rock protests. The Minnesota Public Utilities Commission included a provision in Enbridge's permit for the construction of Line 3 that required the company to establish an escrow trust that would reimburse local law enforcement for any mileage, wages, protective gear, and training related to the construction of Line 3. Law enforcement made the most of these funds, holding field force trainings, staging helicopter and drone excursions, and other militarized police action as they repeatedly surveilled, harassed, and attacked water protectors with tear gas and rubber bullets, inflicting serious injuries, leveling inflated charges against protesters, and ultimately allowing an environmentally disastrous pipeline to be built. We would be remiss in this moment if we did not recognize that we are experiencing the corporate endgame of capitalism, where the stakes are getting clearer and the ruling class is willing to pay for the war-making required to continue profit-chasing in a world on fire. In the eyes of the powerful, the idea of resolving social discord or unrest through good governance has outlived its usefulness. But don't take my word for it. A policy brief by Jacqueline L. Hazelton, published in 2017 by the Belfer Center, which is a research center located within the Harvard Kennedy School at Harvard University, called Why Good Governance Does Not Defeat Insurgencies, spells things out better than I ever could. Hazelton wrote, Conventional wisdom holds that defeating an insurgency requires states to make liberalizing, democratizing reforms that address popular grievances. Liberal great powers, such as the United States, thus press reforms upon counterinsurgent client states as the path to success and long-term political stability. Such reforms are, however, unnecessary for counterinsurgency success. Counterinsurgency success is also thought to require avoiding unnecessary harm to civilians. In fact, breaking the flow of resources to the insurgency, often through the brute force control of civilians, is critical to success. Counterinsurgency success requires the use of force against civilians and the accommodation of rival elites, sometimes including those responsible for horrific acts. By contrast, good governance reforms are unnecessary and often unattainable. Friends, this is the perspective of capital at this moment in history. Yes, Hazelton was talking about so-called client states, but as we have discussed on the show, imperialism creates practice zones for the policing we see at home. The ruling class wants officials who are willing to take the gloves off in an era of collapse because their policy experts don't believe that attempting to sort things out through good governance is worth it anymore. We are watching in real time as the dynamics being described here are bought, paid for, and implemented. Another aspect of this situation that has largely been bought and paid for is a media narrative that has chronically demonized protesters. I think something really important to understand in terms of the connections between sort of the major backers of this project and the media and various attempts to sort of manufacture consent for the project is that our paper of record in Atlanta, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or the AJC, is owned by Cox Enterprises. Cox Enterprises is this sort of like media conglomerate. They actually own a bunch of different media outlets in Atlanta. And Cox Enterprises CEO Alex Taylor is actually the individual who is chairing the fundraising campaign to raise $60 million in private funding for Cop City. And that has impacted, of course, the coverage in so many ways. So there was a moment in the summer of 2021 where city council essentially voted to delay the legislation from going through because of the massive movement against it. And the next day, the AJC comes out with this editorial from its editorial board saying, you know, the crime wave needs to spur action on the center. You know, they had this very hard line saying, you know, the people who are delaying this are you know, responsible for any increased crime or any increased violence. This super disingenuous 
you know, editorial because, of course, even if, you know, even once the facility was approved, it's still going to be years before it's built. So, you know, here, here the AJC is pretending like if this hadn't been delayed three weeks, you know, suddenly the crime problem is going to be solved, of course. And in, in this editorial, they did not even include the disclaimer that their owner is fundraising $60 million for the project. And, you know, so before that editorial and after it, there have been, you know, all of these articles, op-eds talking about, you know, how dangerous the movement is. Again, branding organizers as domestic terrorists. There was already an opinion piece released, I think, today by the opinions editor for the AJC denouncing, you know, the violence and, you know, demonizing the, the protester who was killed. And so I think, you know, the media entanglements are a really, really important part of the story because, you know, they have, they have done so much work in attempting to, to manufacture consent for this project, despite such widespread opposition from Atlanta residents. In addition to being an important green space, South River Forest is also the site of previous atrocities committed by the carceral state. From 1922 to somewhere around 1990, a city-run prison farm was located on the site. The Atlanta Community Press Collective has worked to document the history of the site, compiling a report that states, newspaper articles, letters from nurses, legislative and inspection records, and folk stories tell tales of overcrowding, slave conditions, lack of health care, labor strikes, deaths, and unmarked pauper's graves. Audrey, a member of the Atlanta Community Press Collective, told Melissa Harris-Perry in a recent interview, Some of the worst accounts we found are Black women being instructed by white guards to go work in a remote area. They were then raped by the prison guards after being told to go work in those remote areas. So the, yeah, the history of the proposed site for Cop City, I think, you know, makes the entire project particularly devastating and outrageous. So this is, this is land, you know, it's sometimes referred to as the South River Forest. The, the movement has referred to it by um, its original name, the Wilani Forest. Um, this is land that was, you know, stolen from Muscogee Creek people in the 1800s um, and, you know, taken. And, and it's, you know, now city-owned land, stolen land. In the 1900s, it was used by the city as the site of what's called the Old Atlanta Prison Farm. Um, so it was a prison farm where, you know, mostly Black incarcerated people were forced to work on behalf of the city. So they, you know, they were working on on city projects on the city farm. The Atlanta Community Press Collective has done some amazing reporting on, on the history of that space. And that that Atlanta, the, the, the old Atlanta prison farm, you know, sort of the the ruins are are still there in that area, but it's, you know, been an area where all of, you know, all of this life has grown in its wake. Um, but it of course still carries all of these scars of of state violence. And it's also an area that is currently surrounded by a bunch of different carceral facilities. So there's a children's prison there. There's a Georgia Department of Corrections prison there that holds terminally ill people and pregnant people. There's, you know, what's called a a transitional center. So, you know, there are all of these carceral facilities surrounding it. It's, um, you know, been land that, you know, has been deeply carceral and violent for a long time but land also where sort of new life has grown. It's directly adjacent to um, a public park called Entrenchment Creek Park or the Wilani People's Park that has sort of been reclaimed by organizers and by people in the movement. And actually that land is also currently under attack. That land is owned by DeKalb County, again, directly adjacent to the, to the prison farm site. And that's currently the subject of um, an attempted land swap where DeKalb County is trying to swap that land with Black Hall Studios, this Hollywood Studios, to build to build a soundstage. And so that would also, you know, devastate and destroy this public parkland. And so, you know, of course, those are those are connected struggles. And, you know, it, it all comes back to sort of capital extraction and devastation of public spaces in service of, you know, 
capitalism and surveillance and police expansion. The last line of defense against those who would further devastate this space for the sake of police militarization has been a cluster of forest defenders. As a direct action trainer and organizer, I was mentored by people who honed their direct action skills at tree sits and forest defense actions in the 1990s. I brought those skills into urban spaces where my co-strugglers have squared off with police and waged shutdowns to protest state violence. In Cop City, I see a convergence of those traditions and struggles, which is crucial in these times. But one thing I know about forest defense and tree sits is that taking direct action outside of public view creates a kind of vulnerability that one feels acutely when approached by angry workers or cops. As a blockades trainer told me and a group of workshop attendees many years ago, all of these tactics are premised on the idea that they won't kill us. And that's not always going to be true. So forest defenders have been living in the forest for over a year now in protest, in defense of the forest land, slowing down, you know, attempted construction. And, you know, the, the movement also expands far beyond people who are just living in the forest. It's also, you know, the many organizations who are working to encourage <laughs> contractors to pull out of the project, you know, to basically to basically make the conditions of attempting to move forward with this so untenable for people involved, such that, you know, the city realizes, the contractor realizes, you know, we simply cannot move forward with this. Police repression and surveillance of the movement has been ramping up for um, for a while now. You know, they've created this joint police task force that has police agencies ranging from local Atlanta PD and DeKalb PD to the state police, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and even the FBI, all working together to surveil and repress this. In December, they the police really sort of ramped up that attempted repression with one of their first large-scale raids of the forest. Um, and that's when they really violently arrested five people on, the, on that day and then another person the next day and charged them all with domestic terrorism charges. So these, you know, really hefty state charges, they carry really lengthy sentences, you know, all for people who are living in the forest, using their right to protest, their right to free speech, sort of working within the civil rights legacy of Atlanta, which, you know, Atlanta leadership so often praises, while of course, you know, in, 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 the, in the current times, um, you know, actively repressing it and violently repressing it. And so, you know, that that police have been escalating the situation for quite some time now, going into the forest with guns and weapons, using, you know, tear gas and other, you know, other police um, equipment to, you know, go after protesters. And, you know, of course, that that all escalated to the point where they've killed someone. And really, really tragically, about a month ago when that December raid happened, someone from the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which has been um, helping coordinate a lot of the legal representation for arrested and criminalized protesters, um, someone from this, the Solidarity Fund literally said, if this goes on and something doesn't change, police are going to walk into that forest and kill somebody. Um, and, you know, just just a month later, it's it's happened. And so this is absolutely a matter of police escalation. In his recent essay entitled MLK's Vision Lives On in Atlanta's Fight Against New Police Training Facility, Kamau Franklin described how Stop Cop City supporters have rallied around protesters who are facing domestic terrorism charges, writing, We have had multiple trainings, demonstrations, banner droppings and teach-ins, among other organizing efforts. Now more than ever, the campaign to stop Cop City needs support to show that movements of people will not be intimidated by state violence and its corporate backers. In the midst of worsening climate change, killing a forest and displacing a Black working-class community for the sake of a militarized police base, 
must be stopped. That piece was published a day before the tragic events of January 18th. Since then, we have seen vigils and solidarity actions memorializing Tortuguita organized in cities around the country. Some environmental organizations have notably remained silent throughout these events, but the outpouring of support and solidarity for Stop Cop City activists and Tortuguita has been significant. Two days after the police killed Tortuguita, hundreds of protesters gathered in Atlanta to honor their memory. The protest drew condemnation from officials after some participants reportedly broke windows and set a police car on fire. In a moment when the violence of policing, the destruction of the natural world, and the killing of a protester should be front and center, we are once again being asked to fixate on the destruction of property that is utterly replaceable. Reports that protesters were brutalized by police in Atlanta failed to generate concern among officials who focused on the conduct of the protesters. Atlanta's police chief declared that breaking windows amounts to terrorism and that protesters would be charged accordingly. I think that the broader anti-democratic push to create Cop City and then, you know, most recently the fact that they have literally murdered, a, you know, a climate activist and abolitionist, you know, protester and organizer. I think it shows that it's, it's all hands on deck for the forces of the prison industrial complex, the forces of capitalism, those who are, you know, continually seeking to accumulate capital through any means necessary. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's scary. It shows that, you know, they are willing to use any and all tactics and tools available to them, whether that's literal murder, whether that's, you know, trying to deter the broader movement by slapping people with domestic terrorism charges. As, as environmental catastrophe is upon us, I think the forces of capital are, you know, organizing themselves. And if this moment is showing that it's all hands on deck for the forces of, of capital and policing and, you know, developers and sort of Atlanta's corporate elite and ruling class, it also needs to be all hands on deck for, you know, people of good conscience everywhere in Atlanta, across the country, across the world. There's already been such amazing solidarity, you know, that's been pouring in from places all over. And I think Atlanta needs that. We need, you know, the attention and the focus. I think that this has been really an underreported project for so many reasons, one of which is, you know, certainly that it's happening in the South. You know, they're not going to stop at Cop City. Cop City will impact everyone around the world. And so I think, you know, we, we need, we, yeah, we, we need a lot of attention here. We need a lot of a focus on Atlanta and, and what's happening here. We need support. We need public statements from people. We need people to not be deterred by the fact that they are using, you know, language like domestic terrorism. We need real wide ranging solidarity. And yeah, I think that's it. We need wide-ranging solidarity. Those words really say it all. We need each other right now, just as our co-strugglers in Atlanta need us to show up in all the ways we can to support them. We also need to acknowledge the severity of our situation and decide what it demands of us. The natural world, of which we are a part, is being murdered. The carceral state, is actively consuming those who defend it. Now the state has killed Tortuguita. Disrupting cycles of extraction, whether it's oil being pulled from the earth or time being extracted from the lives of human beings, is punishable by death in these times. That has been true in other parts of the world for many years now, and we knew we were not safe here, in the streets or in the woods. The killing of protesters is not unprecedented in the U.S. 
but the cost of resistance is getting deadlier. These are facts. But what do they mean to us? And what will they move us to do? I know we don't all have agreement on that, but I do know what the 26-year-old activist the police murdered at Stop Cop City had to say about it. Tortuguita told journalist David Peisner, The right kind of resistance is peaceful, because that's where we win. We're not going to beat them at violence. They're very, very good at violence. We're not. We win through nonviolence. That's really the only way we can win. We don't want more people to die. Tortuguita has been robbed of the opportunity to tell us what they did or did not do on January 18th or why. But they told us who they were and what they believed while they were still with us. And I see no reason to think they died any differently than they lived, whereas I see every reason to disbelieve the police. I say this not because I feel the need to redeem Tortuguita, but because we have been given the opportunity to understand them in their own words. And I think that matters. Between the story that Tortuguita told us about who they were and the story the police are telling us, I don't think there's any question about what should be uplifted. I hope you will all continue to learn more about Stop Cop City and how you can support the struggle. There is a solidarity statement circulating that hundreds of individuals and organizations have signed, and fundraising efforts to support arrestees are ongoing. And we will be providing links to all of that information in the show notes of this episode. In addition to hoping you take action, I also hope you understand where we are in this moment of history. The state is willing to kill to bring a practice city for police militarization into existence. The ruling class is preparing to wage a war against us because they are killing the earth itself and grinding us under the gears of capitalism amid a global pandemic, and eventually, they expect us to reject our disposability under this system. They saw flashes of that rejection in 2020, and it terrified them. So they are preparing for the next round, and for a whole lot of forced cooperation with the mass disposal of human beings. They are bordering, caging, containing, and dividing us by any means necessary to prevent us from fighting the very obvious battles before us. Realizing the scope of what's happening is overwhelming, but fighting back begins with rejecting their bullshit story and replacing it with our own. I want to close with some words from the anonymous force defender who spoke with Democracy Now! about Tortuguita's death. They stated, Tortuguita was a radiant, joyful, beloved community member. They fought tirelessly to honor and protect the sacred land of the Walani Forest. They took great joy in caring for each and every person that they came across. Tortuguita brought an indescribable jubilance to each and every moment of their life. Their passing is a preventable tragedy. The murder of Tortuguita is a gross violation of both humanity and of this precious earth, which they loved so fiercely. Do not turn away from this violence. Do not allow the callousness of the police state to numb your heart. Honor Tortuguita by bravely witnessing the ongoing injustices the police and corporations are enacting upon the Walani forest. Honor Tortuguita's legacy by embodying their joyous bravery. Tortuguita's presence on this earth is a gift that will keep on giving for generations to come. It is time for people to join this movement and to say no to this pointless escalation by the police. I want to thank Micah Herskin for joining me to talk about Stop Cop City during this incredibly difficult time. I also want to extend all of my love and solidarity to everyone who has been organizing against Cop City and everyone who is hurting over the loss of Tortuguita. We have lost far too many co-strugglers along the way, especially in recent years. 
but we will continue to fight for the world that our fallen comrades deserved. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.